Welcome to the 25th episode of Supreme Myths. And I wanted to invite somebody um, extraordinarily special for this episode. And I think I've done that, a friend of mine. Um, he is the Cornell Professorship. He holds the Cornell Professorship of Law at UCLA Law School. Uh, his name is Adam Winkler. Um, he has written uh, two amazing books, uh, one called We the Corporations, How American Businesses Won Their Civil Rights, and two, what you probably already know him for, Gunfight, The Battle Over the Right to Bear Arms in America. We're going to talk a lot about these books because they are two of the best legal books I've ever read. Um, Adam uh, has, is, is one of the 20 most cited law professors in judicial opinions today, which I think is actually a really good honor. Like there aren't that many good honors we get. That's a good one. When judges are citing you, you know you've done something really right. Um, Adam, welcome to Supreme Myths. Thanks so much for having me, Eric. I'm a big listener of uh, Supreme Myths and happy to be uh, a guest for once. Thanks. I, I, I have to mention this, and I hope you don't get mad, but you were so kind to invite me a couple of years ago to um, do a, a book talk on my book, Originalism as, as Faith. And I was staying in, in, in L.A. about 45 minutes, I thought, from UCLA. Um, and the, the, the thing was at 12. I got to UCLA 11.05 with a par parking pass. And it took me an hour to get into a parking lot and into the, and into the room, um, which was much more adventuresome than getting from um, Irvine to L to um, downtown L.A. or wherever you are, westward where I was. Anyway, I appreciate you inviting me to do that. It was fun. All right. So we're going to talk about a lot today, but we want to start with current events. This is being taped on Monday uh, at one o'clock uh, Eastern time and the impeachment trial for former President Trump, which has a much better sound to it than President Trump, uh, starts tomorrow. Uh, so some law professors are divided on the question whether we, the Senate can try a person who is no longer in office. Do you have any thoughts about this? Well, I think uh, that there's no question that the Senate can try someone who has uh, already left office. And in fact, the Senate has done it before, right? This is not a first. It's a first for the president of the United States, but there's nothing in the impeachment clauses of the Constitution that uh, separates and distinguishes the president from other uh, people who are holding office under uh, the United States. Um, first of all, I think that it's important to recognize that uh, the framers themselves seemed uh, were very well aware that someone could be impeached after leaving office. Um, during the Constitutional Convention, there was a British governor by the name of Warren Hastings. Uh, Warren Hastings was uh, impeached by Parliament two years after leaving office. So, um, and even during the Constitutional Convention, the impeachment of Hastings was referenced during. Uh, the discussion, although not with regards to whether uh, it was permissible to impeach someone after they had left office, but nonetheless, they were talking about an impeachment approvingly that was happening uh, under English law at the time right. of someone who had already left office. Um, John Quincy Adams uh, said that uh, he would be subject to impeachment after he left public office. He thought that the impeachment power extended that much. Um, and uh, we know that there's the, a specific instance, uh, a history and tradition, if you will, uh, of the Senate uh, impeaching people uh, and uh, sorry, the House impeaching and the Senate holding a trial um, to disqualify someone from public office um, after they had left office. In 1876, Grant's, uh, President Grant's war secretary, William Belknap, was impeached 
after he resigned. Uh, and uh, there was a debate in the Senate on this very issue about whether someone could be impeached after leaving office. And uh, the Senate voted uh, ultimately to carry on with the trial. Uh, and although uh, uh, Belknap himself was not uh, convicted in the trial, the trial did proceed. Uh, and the, the idea that the impeachment was inappropriate um, uh, was overruled. And the key here to remember is partly it seems odd uh, to have an impeachment trial for someone who's left office because we often think of the impeachment power as being about the removal from office of an officer. However, the impeachment clauses envision two punishments, removal of office, but also disqualification from future office. And even if someone's left office, left the office that they were elected to, as President Trump has done, there's still a question about whether they should be disqualified from office in the future. And so uh, the impeachment power, uh, it, by uh, its very nature, uh, envisions uh, punishment after someone has resigned, after someone has left office with this additional punishment of disqualification. There's good founding era evidence to support it if you're a believer in originalism. And uh, as the court has often done, it's often looked to history and tradition to make this decision. And there is a history and tradition of impeaching people after they've left office. So I think it's a pretty clear cut case. And um, I don't think any, any court's ever going to rule on it uh, with regards to Trump. And I think the Senate is going to go forward with their impeachment trial, uh, despite the objections. And if text and history weren't enough, <laughs> um, there's the policy that obviously we don't want people resigning five minutes before their impeachment trial begins. That would be bad policy. Um, we, you and I agree the court wouldn't hear it anyway. I, I think that's very obvious. Um, yet, yet there is this debate that's going on about whether the Senate can do this. And, and that leads me to a kind of tangential question about social media. Uh, you're on Twitter a little bit, um, but you write, you write a lot of op-eds and a lot of essays, and you've been published in every major newspaper in the country. So Bruce Ackerman, who is the Sterling something or other, something or other chair at Yale Law School, and, and clearly one of the most respected, famous con law professors you know, in the last 50 years, he, he writes this op-ed in the Washington Post that says no. That the, it doesn't even it doesn't really justify it. In one paragraph, he says they can't try him because he's already left office. And by the way, he was impeached before he left office. We shouldn't forget that either, right? I mean, the House did impeach him while he was in office. But leaving that aside, um, Bruce's op-ed, I think, triggered this whole debate. Without Bruce's op-ed, because he's a liberal, I'm not sure we have all the discussion. And you know that 45 senators have already said they don't think that. He should be able to be tried. Um, what does that tell us about the law, social media, and influencing today? Well, that is influential. And by the way, we might note that today there was an op-ed by Chuck Cooper, uh, who is a very conservative lawyer who represents yeah. is represented the NRA for ages, worked in the Reagan and Bush White Houses, in the Office of Legal Counsel. Uh, you know, really one of the eminence gris of uh, Washington, uh, Washington lead the Washington legal community. He wrote an op-ed saying, of course, you can try someone after they've uh, uh, left office. So right. we are seeing some odd bedfellows with some liberals saying you can't, some conservatives saying you can. Um, what I think that's I think what it really shows is there's a real difference between academics um, who are really interested in ideas and trying to figure out the right answer um, and uh, and thoughtful critics, uh, people like Chuck Hooper, not an academic, but thoughtful nonetheless, uh, who are willing to challenge their um, uh, their uh, preconceived notions and to 
think about the law outside of the context of how it applies to your favorite political candidate. Um, what we saw in Congress is that 45 people who didn't really think that much about the impeachment question and the constitutional issues involved nonetheless voted in that way, primarily because they want to see that their their favorite political candidate, Donald Trump, uh, immune from any kind of punishment or uh, or retribution for what's happened. Um, and, yeah, I uh, want to say that know, I so worked I think, for Right. So I think it's a compliment to Bruce Ackerman that he's willing to take that view. I disagree with him, but look, we were, we operate in the world of ideas and uh, uh, and they're not just the world of ideas, but it's part of our obligation to share those ideas and how we think about these contested questions with the larger public and to stir and spark debate. So I'm I'm um, I'm going to push back a little bit, which is OK, I think we're friends. Um, I worked for Chuck Cooper, actually, when I was at the Department of Justice and not directly because he was an office of legal counsel, but I had cases where he was involved. Um, he comes from a generation of Republicans like Charles Freed at Harvard and others who have been against Trump from the beginning. So I, whatever, I, I hope he's being sincere in his views. He is not in any way, shape, or form a political ally of Donald Trump. He's the old Republican Party, which wasn't great, but it's a lot better than the one that we have today. The other thing I want to say about Ackerman is the reason that paragraph was, his op-ed wasn't about this. That op-ed was about Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, which I've discussed previously with Keith Whittington here and some other people, um, which, which, you know, says you can't hold office after you've been engaged in an insurrection against the United States. And Bruce's entire pitch in that op-ed was we should use Section 3 of the 14th, not impeachment. So I do think there are political things going on in the background of both Cooper's and Ackerman's op-eds that, that maybe don't distinguish academics from politicians quite as cleanly as, as, as you suggested. Um, I have a more difficult question. Um, and this is where I disagree with progressives, which, as you know, happens to me a lot. And then I get yelled at by my friends and I go home and I'm sad. Um, I am not at all convinced this is good strategy. And, and I've yet to meet a progressive who agrees with me. So I'm going to say I'm probably wrong. But let me make my case and you tell me why I'm wrong. Um, they're not going to get an impeachment. They're not going to get a conviction. I think there's I mean, they might, but it's like 95 percent chance against. So Democrats and Jamie Raskin is a friend of mine. Um, he's leading the trial in the Senate. I actually uh, used his office for a semester once at American. Um, Jamie's a great guy and he's very reasonable, um, but he's going to lose and Democrats are going to lose. And that that gives me two big pauses. One, a loss is going to be viewed as exonerating him from his participation in the insurrection. And I think that's really bad. I think because he was he was involved. And I think that's really bad. Um, two, I, I think um, there's going to be all kinds of First Amendment craziness thrown into this where it does not belong. And I think this country throws enough First Amendment stuff where it doesn't belong as it is. Um, and this is going to do it more. Um, because people are going to say he was just speaking. He was just talking and it was political speech, the most protected speech. We can't punish him for that. So I'm not sure this is a good strategy. Tell me why I'm wrong. Well, I should say that I don't know that you are wrong. Um, I, I can't claim to be a great strategist of American yeah. politics. And uh, I find that what my predictions about American politics are consistent in one way, that they're usually wrong. <laughs> Uh, so I don't know that you you may very well be right. I mean, I could ar I could see arguably that you know if you didn't impeach him in light of what's happened, that would be a kind of exoneration too. It would be a kind yeah. of hey, we don't think he's responsible, and that we think that this kind of behavior can continue. Um, I think the prospect of impeachment, even if he's ultimately uh, acquitted, even if they don't find a, a conviction, 
you know, it does show that there's a little bit of pushback for this kind of behavior. Um, uh, interestingly enough, I think actually the strongest pushback, and I think it's a more successful strategy, is not going to come from impeachment, but come from defamation cases that are being brought by some of these voting technology companies, like Smartmatic and Dominion. Um, okay. Like we've already seen, like nothing, all, all the liberal outrage you can muster for years hasn't stopped Fox, New Fox News from promoting disinformation and lies and <laughs> craziness about America. You know, one lawsuit and uh, 2.7 lawsuit and Fox News cancels its most popular, uh, most watched TV show, Lou Dobbs Tonight. So, uh, you know, maybe there are other ways in which we are going to have a kind of accountability uh, for what's happened in the last few months. I do think that it's important uh, to take a stand against the kind of different disinformation that we've had. Uh, what happened in the last few months has really fundamentally undermined American democracy. And I think a lot of people, when it began in November with Trump's outrageous comments about the election being stolen, a lot of people were like, oh, well, you know what, finally he's going to be leaving the stage and we just don't have to worry about it. We can, you know, allow him to pursue his claims, uh, you know, use the legal process and the judicial <laughs> process. But we see where that resulted. Uh, the result of that was ultimately uh, an attempted, uh, an insurrection at the Capitol, an attempt to stop the counting of the Electoral College votes. Uh, that this happened from the political party that claims to be the only one that adheres to the Constitution and believes in it <laughs> is just one of the great or sad ironies of the Trump years. Yeah, and we'll get, we'll get more into that in a minute. Um, you know, I was raised in New York. Anybody raised in New York who's my age, 63, too, um, knew that Trump was not going to go quietly, knew that there would be a disaster at the end of the at the end of this. Um, and anybody who thought differently has not been paying attention at all to this man, not for four years, but since 1989. I mean, since he's been in the public eye. So, um, yeah, money speaks in America. It's funny how Fox News can can be pushed off of its ideological priors when money's at stake. And we'll talk more about that when we talk about your amazing book, We the Corporations. But before we get there, so you live in L.A. You live in, I assume, somewhere near Westwood or in Southern California. Um, so before we get to the court's heinous decision on Friday night, I'm not going to pretend to be objective about it. It's, I think it's heinous in every imaginable way. Before we get there, what's it like in Southern California? I mean, because, you know, in Georgia now, it's 35 degrees, 40 degrees. Some days are warmer. Some days are colder. We're not really outside all the time. So, but you guys have weather that, you know, usually lets you be outside. Um, what's what's it like? Is, is it? Yeah. Well, I, I think like the answer to that question, uh, like I can't answer that question without recognizing uh, the privilege lens that I look through. Right. I am uh, a reasonably wealthy white guy who lives in a nice part of town and still has my job. And my job does not require me to actually interact with other human beings on a one day <laughs> basis. I can do my job on Zoom. Uh, my wife's in the same way. She's got a nice, good white collar job that's still paying her to be on Zoom. My daughter is. 17 and she's in school and still doing school on Zoom and she's not of one of those ages where it's really, really awful to be on Zoom. It's bad, but it's not as awful as say right. a kindergartner or a first year old. So my experience is really, you know, really go, goes through that lens. And my own personal experience is that, you know, you read the newspaper and it's super scary, but my life is basically a life of isolation as it's been since March of 2020. So nothing's really changed out here. We don't really see it as on a day-to-day -day basis. I'm not in the hospital seeing the overwhelmed emergency room staff or ICU staff. Uh, right. So, uh, so I, I don't, you know, I, I read about it every day, uh, but these things are very community-based. So talk about Los Angeles as having, as being the epicenter right now of the COVID crisis. 
but uh, there was an interesting article, I think it was in the LA Times, maybe it was in the New York Times or the Washington Post a, a week or so ago, that sort of broke it down by areas of Los Angeles, communities in Los Angeles. And it turns out there are some communities where, uh, where people of working class, who, uh, especially immigrant communities, who all live on top of each other because they don't have the money to afford the nice houses we have on the west side of LA near UCLA. Um, you know, that's where COVID's really spreading. And about one in three people have COVID in some of those communities. In my community, that same article has found it's about one in 25. And the numbers haven't really changed much in the last six months um, because people in my community right. have the means to be able to, to remain socially distanced, to continue our jobs without it. So it's really devastating, but it just highlights once again how privilege impacts health outcomes, life outcomes. Um, and it's just one more opportunity, I think, at least for those of us who have that privilege to recognize it and to re remember our responsibility to those who don't have it. Yeah, I think it's well said, Adam. I mean, um, money speaks kind of the theme so far of this episode of Supremist, and it's not going to go away. So um, on Friday night, the Supreme Court overturned the governor's rules prohibiting uh, indoor religious services. And I have a piece coming out. This is Monday. I, I, by the time this airs, it'll be out. But I have a piece coming out in the ACS blog on this. And in doing research for it, I learned that California's economy is bigger than any economy in the world, say, five countries. And then, so it's the sixth largest economy in the world, I guess. Um, and, and then I, and thinking about San Francisco versus LA versus San Diego versus Sacramento versus the world versus the urban, it's like governing a country. I mean, it, it's, it's, it's that California is that big. It's, of course, everybody knows. And <clears throat> so what the governor did is, is, is he banned things that are like indoor religious services, like movie theaters and, and places like that where people congregate together for long periods of time. And if a bunch of people want to have an all-day meeting on freedom of speech, if the ACLU wanted to have an all-day indoor meeting, no, they can't do it. So it applied to speech, it applied to religion, it applied to everything that's like religious services, which is what you'd hope during a pandemic a state would do. They would do it carefully, and you have different rules for different counties and different rules for different times, depending on what percentage of the people are infected. Um, I think I saw over a million people are infected in California. It's all terrible and crazy and complicated. Yet Friday night at 11 o'clock, at 11 o'clock, they, they couldn't do it at 4 o'clock for the news. At 11 o'clock, um, the six conservative justices strike down this ban on indoor religious services. Um, and they upheld a ban on no singing, which to me is a no-brainer. You can't have people in a room singing during COVID. Like, that's just, you know, I mean, that's obvious. Um, but, but the six of them struck this down. And... Um, with almost no reasons given. And Justice Kagan cites a bunch of scientific data in her dissent, in a very short dissent, why California did this. And, and they, they don't even deal with that. They just say this is it, what, what, what we call strict scrutiny and California should have done better and therefore it's reversed. Do you agree with me that this really is a horrible thing for the Supreme Court to be involved in? Yeah, I think the the Supreme Court's definitely making a mistake here in, in this instance. And we what we see is um, um, sort of the manifestation of the Trump justices and the Trump influence on the Supreme Court. Uh, the Supreme Court was already conservative before the three Trump justices were uh, nominated. Uh, justices Gorsuch, 
Kavanaugh and Barrett. Uh, but uh, those three justices have, uh, you know, joined in. They didn't join Gorsuch. All, all they didn't. Uh, Barrett and Kavanaugh didn't join uh, Gorsuch's opinion in full. Um, but in general, they support, uh, supported the idea that these limits on church proceedings are unconstitutional. And it shows that one of the we're likely is an area of constitutional development we're likely to see in the next few years with the new conservative Supreme Court is an expansion of religious liberty rights under the Constitution and a real calling into question about whether generally applicable laws um, uh, can be applied to religious believers. Um, uh, this is an issue uh, that I think we're going to see more and more cases raising it. We've already seen it on issues like LGBTQ rights, such as whether um, businesses that provide wedding-related services uh, can refuse to offer those services to same-sex couples. Um, despite laws that say you can't discriminate uh, on the basis of sexual orientation in those states. Uh, and the court has called those, um, uh, has basically uh, said in Masterpiece Cake Shop, for instance, that, um, that it's likely that those businesses have a religious freedom right to, uh, to discriminate in, in this way. And so I think it's sort of disastrous to expand religious freedom in this way. I mean, I think there is, you know, and there's plenty to complain about with regards to Gorsuch's opinion. Um, California made a number of arguments, right? It said that the reason why we're going to keep churches and treat them um, in, in this way and a little bit differently from, say, like retail establishments is because there's a, a constellation of things that happen in church services. You have gatherings of people for an extended period of time. You have people who are gathering who are not from the same family gathering for a, a lengthy period of time. While they're gathered for a lengthy period of time, they're singing out loud and, ch and chanting and otherwise um, uh, actively expelling the aerosol particles that are so uh, problematic. Um, uh, and uh, and what interesting what Gorsuch does is in an opinion, he says, well, let's take each of these arguments in turn. And he says, well, look, California says that, you know, um, uh, that people will gather uh, in, uh, you know, people from different families will come together. But he says, you know, look, there are other parts of the economy in which California is letting people of different families come together, go to a supermarket, you'll see people of different families together. And then he says, well, let's look at the singing thing. Well, but California allows singing in some other situations, such as in a Hollywood film production, you can have some singing. Um, again, uh, and what part of the problem here is, is that he breaks down the argument that is a combined argument, that all these four things come together, it causes a problem. Right. And he says, well, let's right. take each one of them in turn and compares it to a situation that doesn't involve all four of them together. And so right. it's just poor reasoning, I think, and poor argumentation. One good thing I think about the opinion is I do think that California and some other states have shut down a lot of things like religious services, and perhaps they could think of other ways to go about doing it. And if the court's opinion encourages them to take other approaches that might be uh, more respectful of religious freedom, but still meet the public's demands uh, for public safety, um, then maybe it could be a good thing. So for instance, um, no one's allowed to participate in those church services under the old rule. Uh, but you could have um, Hollywood filming. 
Now, that's not an equivalent because anyone who goes to a Hollywood film set has to get tested first. And there's a regime of testing for everyone who goes onto that film set. Well, why not offer churches the opportunity? If you want to have in-person meetings, you can have them, but you have to have rapid tests for everyone who comes in. And of course, you have to have social distancing and other measures, or maybe you restrict the singing. It does seem like the singing ban is now allowed because Justices Barrett and Kavanaugh agreed that the singing should not be, uh, the singing uh, ban was not uh, constitutionally questionable. So I don't know, there could be some, there is an area where maybe we could have more um, encouragement of, uh, public health officials to think of creative ways in which they might respond to some of these problems and still respect religious freedom. Um, singing is, for the moment, allowed to be banned, although there's some hints that might change. But speaking in unison, I don't think is singing. And I think, I don't know if that's banned or not. Chanting and singing are banned. I'm not sure about speaking. But that raises, that raises the point, Adam, I want to make, which is um, okay, so this, I think, I think, I'm not sure yet, but I think this podcast, whatever audience it has, however small it is, has both law professor, lawyer types, and non-legal types. For the law professor types out there, what made me so mad about Gorsuch's opinion is that it basically reverses the Smith case without admitting they're reversing the Smith case. And I won't debate that too long, but, but Scalia wrote Smith and said generally applicable laws, not targeted at religion specifically, don't raise free exercise concerns. I agree with Scalia about that. Um, and this opinion undercuts most of that decision. They could at least be honest they're doing it. So that's one way the court is not acting like a court in that sense. That be honest. Say what you're doing. But for the non but for the non but for the non-experts out there, I don't think we have to get drugged down or mired down in doctrine to say this is an emergency. It's really hard. California is not Idaho which is pretty homogeneous. And, you know, California has like five different states all in one. And absent really unreasonable actions, why are le life tenured unelected judges second guessing these seat of the, the, these, these decisions that are made in consultation with scientists, as Justice Kagan pointed out, scientists um, and others, which leads me to my question. In his uh, very short statement agreeing that the ban should be uh, the ban on religious services should be reversed. Justice Roberts said something I know you're going to know makes me so mad, but I'm not sure it's going to make you quite as mad. He said, we need to do this um, because we're life tenured. Justice Kagan had said life tenured judges shouldn't be doing this. If, there's, if, there, if there is death because of this, we'll, we'll suffer no political ramifications as opposed to California officials who have to be elected and so on. And Roberts said, we have to do this because we're unelected in life tenure. To me, being unelected in life tenured means humility, modesty, and don't second guess absent the most compelling of reasons. And that's why that sentence of Roberts made me really mad. I'm wondering how you feel about it. Well, Eric, I mean, you're kind of famous for thinking that the court just should just stay out of everything. So I'm not infamous, sure maybe infamous stay out of this. Um, <laughs> Uh, but, but so, um, you know, I'm, I'm kind of torn on it, to be honest with you. On the one hand, I get where you're coming from, and I share your view that uh, the court generally, when it steps into these matters, tends to get things wrong. Um, but of course, American history is filled with examples where the court decided there was an emergency, and so we're not going to second guess uh, executive branch officials, either at the federal or at the state level. It's a disastrous results, right? Uh, we don't have to think much past Korematsu versus United States, where the court upheld the internment of Japanese 
Americans. Uh, we saw the Roberts court in the Trump versus Hawaii on the Muslim ban case. The court kind of took that. But Adam, if well. I, may, I, don't mean to, I don't mean to interrupt, but I'm sorry. I, on Twitter, someone threw Korematsu at me. But here's the irony. These judges would have upheld what happened in Korematsu. And that's the problem. We know that because they upheld the Trump ban, as you were about to say before I rudely interrupted you. But the bottom line is these justices would have been on the side of the president in Korematsu. So what's really going on here is we have six religious judges who think religion takes priority over everything. And maybe they're right and maybe they're wrong. But we didn't vote them in. We can't vote them out. And they would have done the same thing the majority did in Korematsu. So the Korematsu argument doesn't appeal to me all that much. Well, but that's a that's a charge of hypocrisy against these particular judges. It's not uh, actually a statement about whether the court should be involved in those cases as a general matter, right? I mean, Korematsu is wrong, and the fact that other justices might repeat the error, and I think they, in many ways, did repeat the error in the Trump case, uh, right. that just highlights that it's an error, uh, and that we want the court to second guess, uh, even in context of an emergency, uh, and that an emergency is should not be uh, an occasion for the court to say, well, we just have no power to act here. I do think that emergencies should weigh on the court and the court should have a little bit more deference to, um, uh, to lawmakers, especially when there's a public health emergency that's going crazy. I mean, uh, the justices must know that Los Angeles is the center of the epicenter of this COVID problem right now, uh, and yet they, they aren't doing much uh, to help things. Uh, maybe we, uh, you know, maybe, um, uh, but nonetheless, I do think that there is some role for the court to play in these matters. Uh, and uh, it's not so easy to say that, well, justices shouldn't be involved at all. Uh, I do share, though, Eric, your, your sense, though, that uh, these particular justices, if they're going to get involved, it's going to be a bad decision. Yeah. <laughs> so, well, so and, maybe and we just you... don't want the judges making bad decisions. Forgive me for this indulgence. I hope you understand it. Um, I think the history of our country shows that an institution that gives governmental officials life tenure and unreviewable, effectively unreviewable power shows that um, they will simply vote what they think is politically best in the highest stakes political cases. You wouldn't even know, I don't think, reading Gorsuch's opinion, that L.A. County is the epicenter of a lot of suffering right now. I'm not even sure they gave that very much weight at all. And L.A. County itself is bigger than like a lot of states. <laughs> um, okay. Um, so I want to talk about your two books because I love these books. And I, and I you know, I say, I tell it to all my guests, I love your books. I, I usually mean it. But in your case, and you know this from our past. I really, really mean it. I mean, because you, okay, so in case people don't know, your father is a famous Hollywood producer. We may talk about that later. Um, movies like Rocky and The Right Stuff. Right Stuff's one of my favorite movies ever. Um, and so, and, and so on. Um, you tell a great story. So you pick these highly charged issues, Citizens United, basically, and, you know, money and money campaigns and corporate speech, and of course, the Second Amendment. And you write these books that read like novels, and, and you learn so much. So I really can't, cannot tell people enough, go read these books. The, mo the more recent one, We the Corporations, How American Businesses Won Their Civil Rights. Um, if, you, if you can do it, I don't know if during the time we have, the story of how the Supreme Court decided that corporations were persons under the 14th Amendment is an amazing story. And it's full of chicanery 
and devilishness, all the things I hate about the Supreme Court, it's full of, which of course is why I loved it. Can you tell that story in a you know brief period of time or is it too long? Sure. It's actually Thanks. one of the most remarkable and astonishing yeah. stories in American yeah. constitutional law history. And, and in some ways, I was inspired to write my book about corporate rights by Citizens United, but also the desire to tell this story. <laughs> people, I had studied the Constitution for years and didn't know the story. And it's a I story. think you knew it when I read your book, Adam. Really? You'd never heard that story, right? And so... Yeah. And, you know, that's one of the great things that uh, the things I really enjoyed about writing the books that I've written is, is that uh, people who know a lot about the Constitution, like you, Eric, but no one studied it more than you. Um, if I can tell some stories and provide some insights that people who've really thought about it a lot haven't seen or haven't heard those stories, that that's rewarding to me to help to expand uh, our, our base of knowledge. And the cases that you're talking about are a series of cases um, in the 1880s where the Southern Pacific Railroad, uh, right, the big behemoth railroad of the West, um, uh, sought to win rights under the 14th Amendment to the Constitution. The 14th Amendment, as all, all your listeners probably know, was adopted in 1868, uh, right after the Civil War, to guarantee equal protection of the laws, uh, among other things, to the newly freed slaves. And uh, in the 1880s, the Southern Pacific Railroad uh, sought to expand the equal protection guarantee to corporations, too. Um, at issue in the cases was a California law that taxed railroad property differently than other kinds of property. And the railroad said, this discriminates against us. This is just outright discrimination. Uh, and they uh, take their case uh, up to the United States Supreme Court, arguing that the 14th Amendment was uh, protects corporations, too. Um, they hire as their lawyer. I'm sorry, uh, because it says persons. It doesn't say corporations. It says per persons. The 14th Amendment says no state shall deny to any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of the laws. Uh, and uh, and uh, the Southern Pacific Railroad hires a lawyer by the name of Roscoe Conkling, who at the time was one of the most illustrious figures in American politics. Um, uh, he had uh, been a leader of the Republican Party for over 20 years in Washington. He was a former senator and congressman. Um, he had been nominated and confirmed to the United States Supreme Court twice. He turned <laughs> down. Uh, he turned down those uh, that opportunity both times. The second time uh, was in 1882, the spring before he argued the Southern Pacific Railroad case in the Supreme Court. Um, uh, and so when the justices heard him making his argument, he had a lot of credibility, right? He was kind of a peer. He was someone who had been confirmed to the Supreme Court. He turned down the seat, by the way, because he said he was making too much money as a lawyer for the railroads <laughs> to serve on the Supreme Court. He remains, right. by the way, Cockling remains to this day the, the last person to turn down a Supreme Court seat after having won confirmation in the Senate. Um, and uh, and Conkling said that the framers of the 14th Amendment were in, intended to protect corporations, too. Um, and he had incredible credibility making that claim, too. Not only was he thought of as a peer by the other justices, but Conkling had actually served on the committee in Congress that had drafted the 14th Amendment. So when he was talking about what the framers of the 14th Amendment intended, he was talking about his own personal experience, a very powerful testimony. Um, now, this was in some ways what he was admitting to was a constitutional conspiracy of the highest order. He was saying <laughs> that corporations won important protections under the 14th Amendment, but no one in America knew it at the time, right? It kind of <laughs> smuggled into the Constitution. Right. And um, ultimately, the Supreme Court, uh, and he, by the way, he he comes into the court and he, he provides, he produces a journal that was never before published journal that he claims was the, un, uh, the unpublished journal of the deliberations of the 14th Amendment Ratifying Committee. And he said, if you look at my journal, you'll see that I'm right. 
Um, uh, it, it turns out that the Supreme Court held on to that case for like three years and never ruled on it, never gave the final decision on it until the case settled. There's some speculation as to why that happened. I suspect, though, that the court uncovered Conkling's fraud. Uh, his journal didn't say anything about protecting corporations at all. Um, <laughs> and so his argument was just not a very particularly strong one. But a couple of years later, um, uh, the Supreme Court, another one of the Southern Pacific's cases challenging that same law, making the same arguments, comes to the Supreme Court, but this time without Conkling involved and no mention of his journal. And the court in that case rules in favor of the Southern Pacific Railroad, although not on constitutional grounds. It specifically says we're not ruling on the constitutional merits. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, the, record, the, the bureaucrat who uh, publishes the court's opinions, uh, a fellow by the name of at the time J.C. Bancroft Davis, uh, wrote, uh, published the opinion and included a summary, as the reporter traditionally does, right in front of the opinion. In the summary, he said that the court had decided in that case <laughs> that corporations were persons under the 14th Amendment entitled to equal protection of the laws, something that the justices in the opinion clearly said that they did not rule. A couple years later after that, so we're still in the 1880s, a justice by the name of Stephen Field, who uh, not well known today, but maybe the most colorful man ever to sit on the Supreme Court. He was uh, the first justice from the Wild West, and appropriately, he carried a gun with him everywhere he went, even under his robes. Uh, and he's the only Supreme Court justice ever charged with a crime, while or ever arrested with a crime, not charged, but arrested for a crime while he was on the Supreme Court. And the, the crime was murder. So, I mean, this guy was a colorful character. He was innocent of the charge, of course. Um, uh, and he, But he was determined to expand the 14th Amendment rights of corporations. He was in cahoots with uh, Leland Stanford, the head of the Southern Pacific Railroad, uh, was his good friend. Uh, and um, he writes an opinion a couple years later where he just drops in a sentence. Uh, well, as we held in the Santa, uh, in the Southern Pacific Railroad cases, corporations are people under the 14th Amendment entitled to equal protection of the laws, something that the court clearly did not hold in the earlier case. Uh, but nonetheless, he gets away, Field gets away with his sleight of hand for a few reasons, one of which is that the court's about to enter into the Lochner era, roughly 1890 to 1937, and the court reads during the Lochner era, the Constitution very broadly to protect the rights of businesses. Um, and the 14th Amendment becomes the key to that. And indeed, there was a study done in like 1912 that looked at every 14th Amendment case that came before the Supreme Court since 1868, when it was adopted. And the study found that there were a grand total of 28 Supreme Court cases on the 14th Amendment rights of African Americans, the intended beneficiaries of the 14th Amendment. And during that same period of time, over 312 cases on the constitutional rights of business corporations. So the 14th Amendment had been transformed from a shield to protect the newly freed slaves from discrimination into a sword used by big, powerful corporations like the Southern Pacific Railroad to strike down laws that regulated business. And really shows, I think, highlights that, that we imagine the Supreme Court as a bulwark for the protection of minorities. But historically, it's really been a bulwark for the protection of big business and corporate elites. Well, you know, I agree with that. And we, we should all. That's a great story, Adam. Thank you. And you, you did that beautifully. And, and it's beautifully told in the book, too. Um, I also think we need to remind the listeners or viewers of this that at the same time the court was protecting railroads, unintended beneficiaries of the 14th Amendment, to say the least, in Plessy, in the late 1890s, the court upholds a Louisiana law requiring the segregation of the races on public transportation. So, in fact, what the 14th Amendment was intended to do, the court reversed. Mm -hmm. And what it wasn't intended to do, it 
reinstated. Um, and that's all a lot of reasons why the court isn't a court, but I won't go there. Um, so I do think if we jump ahead to 2008, when citizens, whatever year it was, 2010, when Citizens United was decided, um, or modern times, I think most of us agree that let's take, let's take Exxon, forget the New York Times, let's take Exxon. The government is not allowed to break into Exxon headquarters and, and, and rummage through its stuff. Um, and, and, and do unreasonable searches and seizures without a warrant, without probable, probable cause, because Exxon, and the only reason they can't do that is because Exxon does have some constitutional rights under the fourth, fifth, sixth, eighth amendments, fourth, fifth, and sixth amendments, excuse me, um, we're still in the fourth amendment. Um, and, and New York, and just like they could not, if the New York Times had no rights, it would have no right to publish editorials. And of course, we know they do. So I, I think most people, I assume you agree with this, would accept today, we have to, Corporations have rights, otherwise our country really couldn't be a democracy. Is that is that a fair statement? I think that's actually a very fair statement. And uh, it's one of the reasons I've objected to uh, efforts to amend the Constitution to eliminate the rights of corporations. You there's and me both. There's a We the People amendment that's out there that's been proposed in Congress uh, that would declare that corporations have no rights under the Constitution, that the rights only belong to natural people. I think this is a mistake for a couple of reasons, and one of which is, like you say, uh, I think that corporate rights, corporations need to have some rights uh, in America, right? We need They need a basic right of property, otherwise no one would form a corporation. Uh, right. It's important to limit government power by uh, recognizing that corporations should be free from unreasonable searches and seizures. We don't think the government should be able to uh, seize, uh, you know, Google's campus in Northern California and make it a public park without paying just compensation. And they shouldn't be able to just decide that Apple is guilty of some uh, criminal offense without due process of law, without a criminal proceeding and proving beyond a reasonable doubt uh, that Apple has done that. Um, I think those are the kinds of rights that I think most people are not that troubled by corporate rights. Um, where the court's gone wrong, I think, has been expanding um, the freedom of political speech to corporations and the freedom of religion to corporations. Uh, some of these rights are rights that just don't seem appropriate for corporations to have. I don't see corporations in, in church, like uh, California's uh, ban on in-person <laughs> gatherings has been lifted. Uh, I don't think we're going to see Ronald McDonald showing up at a church. <laughs> <laughs> um, with a jolly green giant right behind them, uh, you know. Right. So um, we don't see as we don't see corporations practicing religion. It doesn't make sense to think of them, and it's important to limit corporate voice in American politics because saying that they have an equal right to spend their money on politics when they have so much more money than people do uh, is to uh, is to take the wrong version of equality. I think. Um, so I yeah. think what we need to have is a more nuanced approach to corporate rights, where we recognize that corporations have property rights and due process rights, uh, but maybe not some of the liberty rights of uh, political speech and religious freedom um, uh, that are uh, uh, that are often thought to be at the heart of the Bill of Rights. That doesn't answer all the questions, right? There was a time in the early 1900s where the court said corporations have property rights, but not liberty rights. I don't think that necessarily answers all the questions, but it's a good starting point uh, for us to think about the problem of corporate rights. Let's talk about um, Citizens United just for a minute, because um, I, I think we agree on it, but I'm not sure. Um, so I get so when when Hillary Clinton wanted to make overturning Citizens United a litmus test, you know, for her Supreme Court justices um, at the time, I thought that was both a huge mistake politically, believing that aside, it's just wrong because Citizens United is about a movie. It's not about giving money to anybody. It's not about political contributions or political expenditures. It's about a nonprofit ideological company that made a movie that the government said it couldn't distribute. 
I don't view that as any different than the New York Times publishing an editorial. And I think the result in Citizens United, that this movie had a right to be displayed, I, I think that's the correct result. Where the court went wrong is everything else it said in that case. Um, and, and the fact that the New York Times has a right to publish op-eds doesn't mean the New York Times has the right to give unlimited money to a candidate or even spend unlimited money on behalf of candidates. So I think what Citizens United, it could have been very narrow. Instead, it went very broad. And then we had, and, and it's been downhill ever since. Do you agree with that assessment? I do agree that there was a lot of narrower ways that the court could have ruled in Citizens United and recognized some ability for the Citizens United organization to promote this movie. I will say that just as a matter of legality and legal norms uh, and sort of legal rules, it wasn't exactly, you know, a nonprofit membership organization that was taking out political expenditures under the court's pre-Citizens United jurisprudence uh, under Massachusetts Citizens for Life, a case decided, I think, in the 1990s, early 1990s, maybe uh, late 1980s, uh, the court held that nonprofit membership organizations, even if they take the corporate form, are allowed to spend their money on politics because that's why you give money to one right. of these organizations. Right. Um, the difference is that Citizens United, while it was one of those types of companies, what it was type of those types of corporations, a nonprofit membership organization, it was using money that it had received from for-profit business corporations. And I do right. think we don't want to create a system in which for-profit business corporations can skirt the obligation to avoid making political expenditures by just giving it to a nonprofit to have the nonprofit spend it for them, right? That's a kind of big loophole in American politics. But you're absolutely right. There are more narrow ways the court could have gone about with the Citizens United decision um, uh, and didn't have to do what it did. Uh, we should also note that a lot of what gets associated with Citizens United comes from other cases that have come after Citizens United. Um, so for instance, Citizens United didn't do much on its own to promote this era of dark money, huge, hidden, un, uh, untransparent, unaccountable um, uh, amounts of money going into the electoral process. That's really more about a, a, a case uh, that was in the DC circuit after Citizens United, uh, where the court definitely relied on Citizens United for partly for its logic. Um, uh, but I think sort of the biggest problem with money in politics in America today is not so much Citizens United, but Buckley versus Vallejo, where the Supreme Court in the 1970s said that people can spend unlimited amounts of money to, uh, as long as they don't act in coordination with a candidate to advance that candidate's uh, uh, election. And, and that's what's led to the big, I think the big expenditures, the Sheldon Adelson spending $90 million. There, there shouldn't be a system in which one man can spend $90 million um, and, and everyone else uh, who unfortunately doesn't have $90 million. Right. <laughs> Um, I agree. And I often say it's the McCutcheon decision that came after Citizens United that really makes me almost even angrier because at least Citizens United involved a movie, which which is speech, protected speech. McCutcheon involves a guy in Alabama writing a check to a politician in California. And the court called that speech. Now, I admit writing a check to a politician might, might facilitate that politician's speech. It might not, but it might. But it's not itself speech. Writing a check to a plumber is not speech. Um, and equating that, that check writing to speech is just another one of the many kind of overly broad rules the court has made up, not based on text, not based on history. I think you'd agree with that, but based on values and politics, right? Agreed. And we're back to where we've been all, all hour, which is money speaks. <laughs> um, so let's go to an area where actually money does speak, but a little bit less, but a little bit not quite as directly. Um, 
So your book, Gunfight, The Battle Over the Right to Bear Arms in America, um, this is this is an amazing thing, but I think it is from both liberals and conservatives that I've talked to over the years on countless radio shows, podcasts, TV interviews, they all agree this is the best book ever written on gun rights. And you've got to feel good about that because I've never met anyone who said, wow, that wasn't that good. Like no one's ever said that about this book. It's, it's an amazing thing. We don't have a lot of time left, Adam. Um, so, so your dad um, produced Rocky, I believe, the movie Rocky. Um, Rocky Three is the one with Mr. T in it, I believe. And That's right. This is my statement about what's coming up with the Second Amendment, and then I would like your reaction to it. In Rocky Three, Mr. T was asked, what's your prediction for the fight? And he turned to the camera and went, pain. That's how I feel about the future of Second Amendment rights in this country. Do you think I'm right? Do you think I'm wrong? I think you're right. There's another line in that movie where uh, that might be appropriate for gun control advocates the, these days, which is where Mr. T says, I pity the fool. Um, yeah, yeah, right. yeah, that's right. Uh, right. Right. Yeah, you know what? The truth is, it's a really interesting time in American politics. First of all, thanks very much for the kind words about the the book. It's really um, uh, it's, it's it's a tremendous true. honor to hear that. Um, uh, but I do think we're at a very, very interesting time in American gun politics. We have seen since Newtown in 2012 the reinvigoration of the gun safety reform movement. The gun control movement was kind of dead in America for the last 30 years or so. And although we haven't seen any significant new federal laws since Newtown in 2012, uh, we have seen the reemergence of a real vigorous gun control movement. We see organizations like Every Town for Gun Safety having been formed, uh, Gifford's uh, group uh, and a super PAC. Um, we see uh, money being going into politics. It used to be 20 years ago, all the money that was going into gun related politics on Election Day came from the pro-gun NRA side. Well, we're now seeing a lot more expenditures from the gun control side, and we're seeing a lot of mobilization among gun control advocates. Moms Demand Action has been a, right. with a real force, I think, in the 2020 election and in the 2018 uh, midterm elections. Uh, so we see this real new invigoration. We see Joe Biden has a very, his website during the campaign had a very aggressive set of gun reform proposals. So we see this new movement and this new energy uh, for gun control. At the same time, we've seen the Supreme Court now with its new Trump justices um, clearly about to go the other way and to create new limits on what we the people can do in terms of regulating uh, guns. And I think that's an area that we're likely to see a significant movement, significant growth. We talked earlier in the show about religious liberty being an area where the court's likely to expand the rights of religious liberty. I think we're also going to see the, the court uh, likely expand the rights of gun owners, call into question things like not all of our gun laws. I don't think that's, uh, you know, that apocryphal vision is not going to happen. But I, I do think we are going to see the court call into question um, laws that restrict concealed carry in states like California, New York and Massachusetts. We're likely to see the court call into question some laws that uh, prohibit uh, military style assault rifles or high capacity magazines. Um, uh, and, and so we are likely to see some curtailment of America's gun laws in light of this new uh, this new Supreme Court majority. Um, and so I think the, that that issue is just going to continue to be uh, at the forefront. The irony for me on that, I think I think there's going to be a big decision in the next couple of years, and it's going to be very injurious to gun reform. Um, the, unless unless there's another disaster, if there's a, I, I don't want there to be another disaster. If there's another school shooting of terrible, terrible um, sorrow, then I think the court might wait. Um, but 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 leaving that aside, I think you're dead right on your prediction. And what makes me so angry about it is 
leaving aside the possibility that I think you've raised, that we, if, if one believes in substantive due process under the 14th Amendment, which is where the right to abortion comes from, if I don't believe in that, but if one does believe in that, then I think the right to own a gun in America would be a candidate for that kind of treatment. But there is no even close to legitimate argument that the Second Amendment was meant to give people the right to own guns in their houses, at least not from any respectable historian that I've seen. So the idea that this quasi-pseudo-hypocritical originalist court is going to read the Second Amendment in a way completely at odds with its history is almost too much to bear. <laughs> that's, that's, um, all right, Adam, we, we only have five minutes left. I didn't tell you, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't ask you in advance if I could ask this question directly, and I'm going to ask it. So as we mentioned earlier, just, just, let's, let's end on a, on a light, lighter note. So you grew up in a Hollywood family. Your dad is a famous Academy Award-winning producer. As I mentioned earlier, Rocky, The Right Stuff, ton of other movies. The Irishman, just a couple of years ago. Um, I think The Right Stuff is one of the most underrated movies ever made. I think it's fantastic. Um, when you were growing up, so here's, here's my, my five-minute question. Do you have a good story about Hollywood that you could share, that you haven't shared a million times, that you could, you know, just some, something funny that happened to you because of your dad's success and career? Well, uh, yeah, I guess so. I mean, I don't know how funny it is, but uh, <laughs> um, uh, yeah, I did grow up on a Hollywood family. Spent a lot of time as a kid growing up on film sets and things like that, and uh, saw a lot of celebrities when I was growing up, and they would come to our house and whatnot. And um, uh, it was a uh, it was an interesting time to be sure. Um, uh, but uh, when I was in fourth grade, uh, my dad put me in one of his movies, uh, and <laughs> I, I had a speaking role in one of his movies. It was a movie called New York, New York which was not a very good movie. Uh, oh, I remember not, it, though. I remember it. Well, there you go. It was, it was uh, a musical directed yes. by Martin Scorsese, starring Robert De Niro and Liza Minnelli. And the movie, uh, it was the kind of uh, musical only Martin Scorsese could make. It was about a wife beater, right? That's a Scorsese <laughs> kind of musical. Um, but um, uh, but the, the movie is kind of only known these days, really, for the famous song New York, New York, that Frank Sinatra really made popular in the wake of the movie. That was written for the movie and first performed in the movie. Um, wow. My funny story is only that uh, I had this small part and I played the son of Robert De Niro and Liza Minnelli. Uh, and uh, I've still got some great pictures of them. Uh, and. Uh, <laughs> And it was, you know, when I worked, I was I was young. I was only in fourth grade, but I I, I was in a major motion picture with Robert De Niro and Martin Scorsese. <laughs> I figured I had reached the top of the film game and needed to find something else to do with my career. Uh, and so uh, here I am. You peaked early. <laughs> that 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 is funny. I am, um, I'm a huge Scorsese fan. Uh, I think. Oh, your dad did Goodfellas as well, which I think is. One of the great movies, also uh, uh, of all Raging time. Bull with Scorsese, which was also a great one. So let me just throw a couple quick questions at you, and then we'll go. Um, have you met Pacino? I've met uh, Al Pacino. Al Pacino was in a movie that my dad did called Revolution. Not a good yeah. movie, unfortunately, but he starred in a movie that my dad did called Revolution, and I did get the chance to meet him a few times uh, associated with that movie. I want you to tell me he's a nice guy in person. Can you tell me that? Well, I really can't speak to how he is, you know, outside of a work. I met him in a work context and okay. I was the son of the producer uh, of the movie. Okay. So he was very nice to me and he was very charming and nice. But <laughs> I, I don't know how he might be at, at dinner. You know, I will say that the personality of actors is a general matter. And this is not a reflection of Al Pacino in any way. But uh, the personality traits of actors uh, was exactly the kind of thing that pushed me from going into the film business, <laughs> becoming an academic instead. 
So uh, uh, my sister went to Sarah Lawrence from 1974 to 78. Sarah Lawrence at the time was one of the best, maybe still is one of the best theater, you know, acting colleges in the country next to, next to Yale, maybe, and a couple others. Um, and she and about 10 of her friends went to Hollywood to try to make it. Um, they were all really talented. My sister actually was pretty talented. Um, and she even had connections to my dad who worked at American Express. And I met a lot of her and her friends when I was in college during that time period. And what I'll never forget about it, and what I think um, to me uh, sums up what you were just saying, I think, is when I got to L.A., I grew, my sister and I grew up in New York. You know, she was from New York her entire life, except being born in Canada. Um, she introduced me very dramatically as my brother from the East. <laughs> and I went from the East. And I went to look at her and say, I'm not from China. I mean, what do you mean? I mean, from the East. You know, and, and, and all of their reactions were so over the top that it was fun for like an hour. And then I got so tired and I was like 19. Um, is that a fair <laughs> dramatization of kind of not, I mean, it's a true story, but I feel like it feels that way a lot. Is that probably true? Hollywood people are a little bit over the top. I think that's okay. fair to say. <laughs> okay. uh, Adam, thank you so much for doing this. I wish we had more time. I really appreciate it. You and I have done a lot of things in person together. And when COVID ends, we're going to do that again. I promise. Um, and thanks so much for coming on. I'm looking forward to it. And Eric, thanks for doing this. Thanks for having me on. And thanks for doing the show. I think it's great for people like me who have a real interest in constitutional law and in the Supreme Court uh, to get the kind of critical vision and critical um, uh, commentary that you provide and the, the guests that you bring on provide. So I think you're doing a great service. I'm happy to participate in uh, my small way. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Adam.